This is Petticoat Rule, a program about musical productivity examined through the storytelling lens of women in the music industry. host Erica Lang and let me introduce producer Tara Molesworth. Hello. And today's guests are the women of Pittsburgh-based cultural fusion folk band Appalachia, Mimi Jong. Hello. And Sue Powers. Hi. Appalachia, true to its name, is an impressively crafted musical mingling of Appalachian and Asian instrumentation and composition. Most often you will see this trio with Mimi playing the Chinese Erhu, alongside Sue on banjo and their bandmate Jeff Berman on the Appalachian dulcimer. All have a passion and virtuosity that is inseparable from the music they create together, which soars and lifts and haunts all at once. Their careful attention to their compositions shines through in each piece and performance. Beyond that, Mimi and Sue are both artists in other areas of their lives, balancing their various creative crafts. One of my favorite things about them is their inclusivity of others, making music a community-oriented craft through their various collaborations, many of which are cross-cultural combinations or feature unique or folk instrumentation. Personally, I'm eager to hear about their backgrounds, how they found their musical voices, and what the power of music means to them. So let's get started. First of all, I think let's talk a little bit about Appalachia and how it came to be, um, because that's the that's the thing that unites you together in a musical group, right? Is that the only context in which the two of you play together? Not always. Um, it's sometimes, uh, you know, I'm thinking of Afro-Yaki. Are you involved in Afro-Yaki? Kind of peripherally, uh-huh. <laughs> but Appalachia is involved. So Appalachia is so, your main gig together. Oh, absolutely. And how did how did this come to be? I think it's such an interesting idea um, for a musical uh, combination, and you do it so well. I just want to know the story. Well, um, a long time ago, um, I was approached by the Gateway to the Arts. Lisa Hotma. Hotma, yeah to uh, form a Chinese ensemble. So I did, and at the same time, Jeff uh, was also involved with Gateway to the Arts, and we knew of each other, but we never officially met until a friend's music party. Jeff and Sue came, and I came that night, so we started to jam, and then Jeff and I started to play together just just to see what can come out because we had no idea. But in my the back of my mind, I always wanted to play with musicians from different cultures. That was what I always, always passionate mm-hmm. uh, about. 
So then we had some gigs with Jeff, and we were already up Malaysia. And uh, not long after, Sue joined us. So we have been playing together for over... Two thousand nine, maybe. And so, I I joined the group. My my husband is Jeff Berman, who plays at Dulcimer. So originally, he and Mimi started a duo, and Mimi got him involved, backing her up at um, Chinese festivals like the Dragon Boat Festival. Mm. And I would go and and just listen. And um, the two instruments were so different, you know, that I just kept hearing a bridge. Ah. where I thought the banjo could fit in. And it wasn't because I felt left out. I just, you know, I'm a visual artist. I draw and paint. And and my whole career playing folk music, I always fit in the holes. Like if I see a space where there's something that could help, mm -hmm. that's kind of how I operate <laughs> creatively. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, I was like, the banjo could be a bridge. And I could, you know, connect these two instruments that are so different together. So, so how did you bring it up? That I don't quite remember. So I feel like all good ideas <laughs> have that background story. Like, I don't remember where I got this really great idea. But once you're in the thick of it, you know. I will say that our very first gig as a trio was was really demanding. We didn't quite have it together. And we were at Mellon Institute with a full crowd and a big auditorium and um, several um, Tibetan Buddhist monks sitting like right in the front row. Oh, very intimidating. And we had, It was. <laughs> and we had to, um, you know, do some of our own compositions, some of Jeff's compositions, where he's coming from a jazz background. So uh -huh. they're not easy. Right. And on the course. banjo, you have to find new, you can't rely on your old square dance stuff. And our whole thing was about listening and being on the edge of teetering off balance. And we would always write the balance. So it was a moment-by-moment -moment performance where we were just listening and and re reacting is all improv. And um, I saw the Buddhist monks putting their thumbs up. Really? You got thumbs up? You got thumbs up from the Buddhist monks? Yeah. Wow. I, I think it was the the, the idea of um, intense listening, being in the moment, and the balance of balancing things, you know, parts that you don't usually see balancing together. That's you know? a great credit to your musicianship as individuals, too, that you could do that so well. Yeah, I think it is more a person, personality, mm -hmm. than the music itself. Mm. Um, You're vibing together, your synchronicity. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. the connectedness as human beings first. And actually, we were looking for that. I know I was looking for that because in my various projects, I was spending too much time trying to connect with people, which is what I wanted to do musically. Yeah. And um, with Mimi, there was an instant connection. And philosophically, uh, I felt like she and she stated it that, you know, we have to be as one. We, we sound like one instrument. And I was like, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> what a special moment. Yeah. Yeah, this cultural openness is very important for a successful collaboration cross-culturally. You cannot bring your music, uh, your technique, and make one voice with uh, 
musician from other cultures. You kind of have to drop it and just pick up what's going to work in that moment with what they're bringing to you. Mm-hmm. So you have to be really open. You have to step out of your own comfort zone. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just be stuck in that box that you're trained or that you're raised uh, with, it's hard to interweave with other. Definitely. And to make something new. Something that didn't happen before. Mm-hmm. So it's not we're. Where you could say we're breaking it down, destroying it, stepping outside our genre or outside our comfort zone. But um, we we found that exhilarating, and mm-hmm. we would sit around and talk about it when we were trying to describe our band. That was our favorite part that we didn't we could drop the cultural that gauge associated with our instruments, especially you know banjo. Yeah. It has a lot of cultural baggage. <laughs> People see a banjo and they think it's the music is going to be a certain way. All the time. And you guys yeah. must just blow people out of the water when you, like, you, they maybe first see a banjo and they're like, then Mimi's bringing this thing out. What is that thing? Or who, you know? Oh, uh, and, and that's not different than the Chinese people seeing the Erhu uh-huh. uh, a certain way. It oh, got, really? Yeah, it got to be Chinese. Yeah, sure. And because I wasn't born in China, I have never lived in China, so I have this uh, freedoms. And I'm, where were you born? I was born in Indonesia. Okay. Uh-huh. My father was from China, and my, my mother's uh, parents were from China. Mm-hmm. So I finished high school there, and I wanted to leave the country so badly. Um, I ended up studying architecture in Germany. And so where did you pick up the musical instruments along the way? Is the Erhu the first thing you picked up? Almost. I remember when I was maybe six or eight, my parents gave me a harmonica and my mother was my first uh, introduction to music. She wasn't, she, she wasn't a musical person, but she knew that uh, the notes in a harmonica is only seven that you you need to deal with. So she taught me and I was able to play a song. That was it. And then many, many songs more. And uh, my father came from China as a teenager and he brought uh, the Erhu with him mm-hmm. and he played. So when I was about 10, he asked me, do you want to learn to play? I say, yes. So before he found me a teacher, he actually sent me to a youth orchestra to play the bell so I can <laughs> <laughs> so I can keep the beat and I can uh, read the score okay I'm, I, I can see that sounds like maybe a hint of you were like the bell so too simple <laughs> well, I, I had no idea I just like okay I'll do that uh-huh. and I, I was not uh, I didn't know more than that uh-huh. so and then not long afterwards um he found a teacher for me. Uh-huh. What happened was my father was from Longyan in Fujian province, like not the coastal area, but you, you got to uh, cross the mountain. Mm-hmm. It's the other side of the mountain, maybe a bit isolated. It's, it's a tea town. They have a lot of tea plantation. So there, his people who moved to Indonesia, they are very close, like, you know, they're like a family. So they bought the whole orchestral uh, music instrument from China. Mm-hmm. 
before they had anything else. The instruments are there. So oh. then they brought their children. Oh, first they had a building. They bought the building or they built a building. I don't remember. Like uh, many levels. The first floor was from for the father to chit-chat while they... <laughs> the waiting room. Yeah, the, yeah <laughs> to drink tea. And the, these men like the chit-chat. <laughs> and the mother uh, stay at home with their younger uh, children. So um, then the first floor was dedicated to music and the second for dance. So that's how their children learn wow, about so cultural. about Chinese yeah. culture. So they they have they were successful business people. So they were able to uh, do that for their uh, offsprings born in Indonesia. So wow. we had our own youth orchestra and we traveled. Wow! So you got into the music lifestyle pretty early. Very early, yeah. Where did you go? I mean, that must have been really just fantastic. neighboring neighboring little town. You was know, that really exciting? Were you that was, by that? It was so exciting for the young young kids. You know, they, they were all from 10 to 18 uh-huh. uh, and only led by the fathers because mother always stayed home with the kids. Uh-huh. So my father uh, had a serious talk to me every trip, like uh-huh. set me down and say, <laughs> I am in charge for all the kids' uh, life there and I demand that you follow all the rules. One time, I came late after the in- intermission. Boy, he was mad. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a captivating story and also very touching about uh, like a group of people feeling the importance of music and art and culture and like making that be a dominant part of their life in a new, in a new location. Yeah, and discipline. Yeah, and, and dedication, hard yes. work. Yeah, so you feel like those lessons probably stuck with you through all of your musical career. Sure, because and they led by example. Would you say that you're more comfortable living a little outside the box, though, too? Always. Yeah. So you're like disciplined and structured and rule following. Another, but, yeah, another but you're part. also like, there's a box boundary. I'm going to yes. go try to step outside of it. Yeah, the adventurous uh, urge. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> So, Sue, what's your banjo story? Is the banjo the first uh, instrument that you picked up? No. No? no tell I, me. Tell me. Piano. I instigated the whole thing. Really? So both my parents met through um, music. They did musical theater. They both singers. And my father um, was a paid soloist who would go around and, and work with different community choruses in Pittsburgh. And he did a lot of sacred music. So I grew up with um, music being super important in, in my family mm-hmm. and something that um, gave um, my parents happiness for themselves personally. That was obvious. So, you know, I, I wanted to jump in early and just, I can do this too. So I was precocious in that way. That's cute. He even has, um, um, he would tape every performance that he did. And you can hear me on tape as a little kid running up and down aisles of the church going, let let me sing, let me sing. (laughs) Like three. Wow. (laughs) Meant to be. Maybe. (laughs) You're so driven by it. Well, I think they... They wanted me to show a little more humility, (laughs) which, um, you know, that was always another part of the training was don't 
think too much of yourself or think that you're that good. So this is coming kind of, from your parents? Yeah. So it's kind of an odd balance of like, you've got to do this. It's the best thing in the world, but don't be too boastful about mm. it. And years later, you know, I told my uh, parents, like, I think I should have been more boastful. Yeah. About it. Oh, why do you yeah. say that? Um, I think it held me back. Right. Yeah. Like it kept you from taking the full role that you might take? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I was afraid of what people would think, uh -huh. probably. But the piano I started, um, I didn't like reading music. I liked playing by ear. Mm -hmm. And I asked for a guitar, like around nine or ten. Oh, wow. So I got... Uh, my parents were unsure about that. They were older parents, and they were coming from the big band era and classical music. And the, the guitar rock was and like roll was a little fangled young or something. <laughs> I was a little too too distant from their their growing up experience, and um, uh, they bought me a plastic one. It wasn't a really good one. <laughs> it was really hard to play, and I worked on playing this ridiculous instrument. Uh -huh. And um, had to um, save up my babysitting money, and I uh -huh. got a real guitar at 15. I was, like, doing even – well, even before, even with the uh, plastic guitar, um, it was the Girl Scouts that um, really were into playing guitars at this time. We're talking about, oh. you know, the late 60s, early 70s. Like you could get a guitar badge for your... Um... I don't think there was a badge for guitar, <laughs> but they had a, a great Girl Scout songbook, which had a lot of folk music in it and a lot of, interestingly enough, um, global folk music in that book. I still have it. So it was songs from around the world that we learned. And they need, you know, the mothers didn't know how to play guitar, who would run the Girl Scout troop. <laughs> so it was up to us to, um, we just, girls in the neighborhood, we just decided we're going to back up all these songs because wow. they wanted us to sing. Mm -hmm. So we learned, we taught ourselves to play guitar wow. so that we could do these songs with the group. So you and how many other girls did this? Probably about five. I mean, it wasn't wasn't just me, and it was good that there was, you know, help. You know, I wasn't doing it alone. Yeah. I was totally game for it, though. But in, in high school, once I started getting better instruments, I'm dropping the piano and um, going, going and definitely going in that direction, um, we would get challenged by boys. To like, bet you can't play this. Of course. They always, they always got to pick on you when you're approaching there. Well, so zone. we would run these little contests in high school, and I'd have to go listen to Jeff Rotoller. <laughs> Crosby, Stills, and Nash was like the big uh -huh. big deal band. So the, they were like boy versus girl competition. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wow. And so what happened? We would learn it, and we'd, we'd perform it for them and go, we learned... Uh, Steve still solo on this. Wow. You know, we did, we would do it and we'd figure it out. It, it, it was fun. You know, who was the judge? Who were the judges? Well, just other guys that we hung out with our friends yeah. really, uh -huh. but, but they were a little demanding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was a good thing. I, I think, um, I don't know if they were trying to help us, you know, because yeah. they didn't teach us the music. We still were doing it ourselves. Mm -hmm. They didn't learn the solo. 
They did not learn the song? No. So you, no, won. We did. you won the competition then, right? Yeah, and, and that brings me to the banjo. Um, uh-huh. I think I was a junior in high school, and one of my friends, Brian Donahue is his name. He's uh-huh. now a scientist and a writer. His father was really into folk music as protest music like Pete Seeger and stand up for the working men and all that kind of stuff. So he was coming from, had a different record collection than my parents. Mm -hmm. So I started listening to his records and he said, we need to get a banjo. And I'm like, well, I'd love to get a banjo because my my great uncle played banjo and my grandfather was a fiddler. My grandparents had played music, but it was Appalachian music and it was for square dances. So it was the real kind of Scotch-Irish folk music from this region here around Pittsburgh. So I'm like, yeah, this is in my family. So um, I'd love to, you know, play the banjo. So we put our money together and we bought a banjo together. And then again, it was a contest. It was like, well, let's see who can learn to play it first. <laughs> well, I learned to play it first. I learned to play it, but I just was fascinated with it. I wanted to learn and I wanted to speak. I think I had a voice that had to get out, and I was trying to find um, how um, my expression was going to go because piano didn't work out. Um, as far as voice went, my dad was such a great classical singer, and he would always tell me, I don't think you have a voice for opera. <laughs> <laughs> and I, again, I'd be like, I'd have to fight for, you know, to stand up for myself. And yeah. I'd be like, well, I'm not going to be singing that stuff. Mm. I'm, I'm into blues and <laughs> rock music and you know and I have a voice for that yeah you are a vocalist Mm -hmm. as well and um so many like reviews of you guys they they describe Mm -hmm. you as haunting your voice as haunting um so uh, do you not consider your voice as like your main voice it's the banjo or do you feel like they're it just goes together Oh, it totally goes together. I don't think of myself as a singer or a vocalist. I think of myself as a banjo player um, who sings and writes. Mm-hmm. So it's all together and also a painter. So it's right. it's all kind of balanced together it's, for me. Do you, like, make a living with painting? I teach a lot. Oh, I okay. teach um, at Carlo University mm-hmm. part-time and, and CCAC. So that's great. So you spend like a hundred percent of your, of your mental career life in art art and music. Yeah. Wow. But I had, (laughs) but I had to diversify in order to find enough to do and and enough work. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think that's the story of almost every artist who makes Mm -hmm. their living that way is you have to do things, some things that are not even necessarily the passion part of your creativity but but uh kind of this story can go on forever but um the banjo became my voice um because even though i love guitar and i was making some headway on guitar um if there was something about the sound of it the earthiness um the bluesiness of it Mm -hmm. that just the instrument itself it just fit my body better and i just started um getting emotionally the sounds out of it that I wanted to to hear and, and work with. So that's incredible. I think it's, you know, a lot of people talk to me about 
how they don't have talent in music. And I say, you might just not have found your instrument yet. Yeah, switch instruments. Switch Aren't instruments. If, ones. Yeah, like especially like a lot of people start with piano because everyone starts their kids on a piano, you know, and, and it makes sense or like the bell, right? So that you learn some basic fundamental theory or rhythm or something like that. Um, but that's not the instrument for everybody. So you just have to keep switching until you find the thing that sings for you. Mm-hmm. And I guess the air who is that for you? Well, I actually only took uh, one year of a who lesson and then... I was uh, 11, yeah, or 12, yes, something like that. I said to my father, I don't want to play this old people instrument. (laughs) I want to play the violin. So um, he bought me a violin, a little one, um, and he found a teacher for me. So I didn't touch the erhu until I went to the university in Germany. And many of my German friends said to me, you must play this instrument for us. And of course, they have never seen one. And I didn't have one. So I wrote my father, I need an Uhu. (laughs) (laughs) He was so, so happy. I bet. (laughs) And he sent one via family's friend Uh uh, from Hong Kong, hand carried to me wow very very quickly (laughs) (laughs) he was very very happy yes so I played in uh, as a student um I play I perform because at that time no one played the erhu in Europe and uh yeah I was playing the way I learned it my playing only changed after I came to this country yeah, oh. that was also because I learned the violin playing classical uh, music. And then I also learned uh, in one of my father's trip, he brought a beautiful red scandali accordion for me, 80 button ladies, wow. small one. So I was thrilled and I, I had lesson for years on that. On accordion. Accordion. So through accordion, I learned music from all over the world, just like Sue learned through the Girl Scout book. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that has helped me. And when I study in Germany, I had a friend who, uh, uh, a friend from Indonesia, Rosalie, uh, is her name. She played the guitar. So I end up spending all weekends in her room and pick up the guitar. Actually, the guitar belonged to another friend, Lucia Simon, a German girl. So I I learned to play the guitar. Mm-hmm. I think this all helped uh, how I do music today. Yeah. Well, you're both like evolving artists um, continuously, which I think is really great. Like you, neither of you have stopped playing. You just keep playing. It's such a part of your being. Yes, yes. And not only in the, in the uh, area of music. I think very important is also that I make friends, very close friends with people from uh, many different countries. Mm-hmm. You know, I have international sisters. I have mm-hmm. that who are like my sister. We regularly see each other and we share different religion and we speak together a language that is not our mother tongue 
and that really helped. We live in the dormitory together, and the German kids always went home every weekend. Uh-huh. So uh, we were we we cooked together, we traveled together. Oh, so nice we were uh, we were each other's family. So I definitely think of you guys as you know the show is about being creative and being productive and, and being successful in that way. And I, I hear you talking about your dedication and your commitment. And I think of you guys as very successful in doing music in your lives. And when I mentioned it to you before the show, Sue, you, you were saying in some ways, yes. And in some ways, no. And I was just wondering if you would uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, I think, I think the, the hard part is, um, finding a way to, um, step outside your your regular work life we would both raise children and you know had to kind of stay close to home mm. um and i when i would travel i'd bring them with me and most travel of, for music or yeah travel? yeah they they were always with me and and um if i had gigs they were always there you know, I I like Mimi's idea of having an extended international family because mm-hmm. I definitely rely on my nuclear family a lot to, you know, support each other, you know, in all our projects. So, mm-hmm. but um, it's hard to um, connect um, and find with this type of music that we do since it's kind of unique. Like, where can we play, and um, how to basically go around the world with it because that's our goal is we we all love to travel and we want to see and be in different places because that gives us um inspiration to write too sure i mean because it's like this cross-cultural music to begin with that travel probably really would feed you for for several reasons um when i write music i tend to write in motion i write whole songs when I'm driving my car because I'm moving because I see music as it's a time-based art so it it has a beginning middle and an end and you're thinking of linking segments together and then having like a crescendo or a bridge or some kind of shape to it and I've always you know always found that when I'm moving I get a rhythm and I could be walking too (laughs) the same I can get the same effect uh, with walking it allows my mind to wander and make connections of various parts. So my songs are like collages and uh-huh. layered, a lot like painting, <laughs> so, which is what I do too. So I'm combining my, my visual art techniques with the, with the sound and the music techniques because that's the language that I know that I really got skilled in through school. So I, I need to get... You know, as much as I I like to zero in and focus on um, being inside my house, being alone, and I can have thoughts there, or I can look out every window and take a photograph, and it's different every day. Like, there's infinite possibilities. Just if I was stuck at home, I'd still be doing this. Mm -hmm. But I like to have a bigger view of the world and what's going on. And so I feel it necessary to um, get out and play for as many people as possible, <laughs> as many, many situations as I can. So Appalachia's yeah. Golden is 
is it actually to try to travel the world yep. and play for people all over the world? Because we do have friends all over the world. It's not sure. like we don't have connections, but it's, um, you know, figuring out how to afford to do it, how oh, to pay for it. I know. That's, yeah. the, that's the worst part. <laughs> <laughs> and also to create conversation between people. I think it is very important uh, when you play music together with people, words cannot get there because uh, you share your emotion. I think another uh, medium would be sharing food. Mm. One I of don't, my favorite activities. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know what other ways to uh, promote this understanding between people. Music my, and food? Yeah, music and food, I think. Um, when I when I play with people from anywhere, Africa, um, Eastern Europe, I've done that, and we uh, we just mm, we didn't need to talk. We sat down, we play, and that was this deep connection that you can see in both both sides. Mm. Oh, that's that's definitely true. My you know. I went to um, university here in Pittsburgh, and so I lived a long time in, in Pittsburgh as a young adult, and music was the way to interact with everybody. Mm -hmm. Universal. Where, yeah. So that that's yeah. something really special about it. You don't yeah. have to know that person's language. And yeah, all the, all the uh, distance melts away. Yeah, and what I would like to see happen is also to bring musicians from other parts of the world to our world and bring them to uh, schools to show the children that how beautiful it is when we play together, uh, regardless the genre and uh, the instrument. I feel like in America, the arts tend to, the funding get, keeps getting pulled and, you know, for arts and music. And, and um, I don't know, do you see that? here as well, I mean, in your perspective? Of course. It's getting harder and harder. Yeah, and as an art teacher, mm -hmm. um, people aren't coming to you with skills they should have gotten long ago as young oh, kids. Oh, really? Mm -mm. Like what kind of skills? Just, um, you know, simple drawing skills. Uh-huh. You know, just having, when, when you're in college and people never used pastels before. Yeah. I'm like, how'd you miss this? <laughs> oh, wow. I'm like, totally. I, I didn't. Does that blow you away? Well, I did. People actually... had no art classes, you know, or they couldn't fit them in, or it would have to be something extra that mm -hmm. you would seek out. Yeah. And I think that happens to, you know, young people in Pittsburgh is they have to go out of their way to get some art That's training. definitely true. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear you talk about how your musicianship and your artistry are overlapping and even your technique and how you think about layering for 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 songwriting well for me um teaching drawing you know you have to um connect with what your your whole body and being has to connect with what you're seeing and it you know if you have the skill you can and you can practice this and you know everyone could get better at this but you know, what your eye is seeing is your eye is moving, your hand is recording it. 
And I feel sounds the same way. If you listen, it's like seeing. It's like, you know, looking at something visually. Now I'm listening and I have to react instantaneously in that moment to what I'm hearing. And I record or elaborate or I respond to to what I hear. So it's real similar to drawing, mm. observational drawing, where you're you're taking in sensory information and you're you're you know, responding to it in real time. So I, I, I play music that way too. It's just um, sound based instead of visual. Well, you're translating it into the skill that is getting it out through your hand. Yeah. I, that's what works for me. Yeah. 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 No, I'm just, I'm so envious of your <laughs> skills, your skill sets. And, um, and Mimi, I like to your, just your general interest and dedication to cross-cultural stuff. So, you know, like I sound, I found a video of you playing with a, a, a guy playing hurdy gurdy. And I just was like, hurdy gurdy. I just thought that was a word. And I know I, I'm like really fond of strange instruments and mm-hmm. I, I somehow had missed the hurdy gurdy. So uh, can you describe the hurdy gurdy so people know what this is? It's a really kind of a weird instrument. I didn't know what a hurdy-gurdy was six years ago until I met Tomas Lozano, whom uh, we had here in Pittsburgh for a whole week last week. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of... Uh, um, I learned a lot because uh, he had a one-hour lecture at Duquesne University and he talked he explained his instrument also uh, during our concert. What I like about what he said is that uh, when you play the violin, you bow, up bow, down bow, and you run out your bow. And the hurdy-gurdy, somebody create this wheel that is like the endless bow. <laughs> it just go and go and go, and it's bringing the string to the wheel. Uh-huh. So he he activate each node, and he has a key keyboard key thing there. Uh-huh. Uh, it's like the piano key. It has white and black key. So when he press one key, the string is being uh, brought to the wheel. So it creates sound when he crank the wheel. And he also has some so drone. Cool. Yeah, drone drone a few drone three and three six that he can activate and nod or not keep droning while he played a melody. Kind of like a, a string version of a bagpipe. Yeah, yeah, they sound very similar too because these two instruments were loud enough for any ceremony and service. Uh, it was it was used in the Middle Age. And uh, like the Erhu, hurdy-gurdy has a history of over a thousand years. Wow. So that's why our duo is called 2000. Ah, nice. And uh, I think Hurdy Gurdy got more glamour than the Erhu. <laughs> Who means barbarian? Uh, oh. Come from the come from the word Han, H-U-N. The Chinese call the Han people Hu people, Huren. So uh, Erhu has always been a, a street instrument. Uh-huh. Only this uh, plug string was uh, was a uh, you know, glamorous instrument that was allowed to play in the imperial court. But hurdy-gurdy was used in a in a French court. So uh-huh. and also at some period, hurdy-gurdy was uh, were played by the beggar, street musician, oh. and blind people. Much, sure. Yeah, uh-huh. much like the erhu. Wow. So they actually share kind of an interesting historical connection. 
in terms of how they were used. Exactly. Um, And so you were saying who is um, related to the people who kind of brought that to life, but what is air in the Uh, air? Air means two. So for two strings. Yeah, two strings. Uh, Hu Qin means Hu instrument is this family of uh, Hu instrument, Er Hu, Gao Hu, Zhong Hu, Da Hu, Di Hu. And all these who, yeah. Oh, there's so many who's. <laughs> yeah, many, many, many. <laughs> Bigger, do you, smaller. Do you play other who's? I can pick up and play, mm-hmm. but I have in my possession, I have three three who's instrument. I use Zhong Hu with Appalachia and uh, Erhu. Erhu is like the violin, is the main mm-hmm. instrument. And Zhong Hu is actually less used in solo, just just accompanying in orchestra. Is it bigger? It's one fifth uh, lower. It's a little okay. bit bigger, and so the gaohu is from most evolved from the Cantonese, not Cantonese, evolved from the uh, folk opera. Mm-hmm. Very high pitch sound is a fifth uh, higher. I see a fourth. I see. Or, so it's kind of like having like a cello, cello and a viola, violin, violin yeah. bass, yeah, and mm-hmm. a bigger, bigger hu chin uh, you put on the floor. Play. Yeah, but, uh, unfortunately, you don't see it play in the uh, Chinese orchestra anymore. They replace all this lower end uh, sound with uh, Western instrument oh, because really? yeah, because it produces uh, stronger sound quality. I see. And does that make you sad or anything? Yeah, I think it looks so cool when we had in my uh, youth orchestra. We had all this. Uh, Chinese instrument, mm-hmm. all sizes, and that looks so cool. Yeah, well, I think it's it's neat that you are, you know, you cherish the oldness and the original and the ancient and the, you know, and then, but you're doing, you're using it in all of these new ways, which is really right. cool. I think that's the only way for us now. To keep it alive, right? Yeah. The same with the banjo, yeah. actually. I mean, people use the banjo a lot right mm-hmm. now, but um, it's, it's still mostly in the traditional banjo way. Yeah, I I, I need to um, take in all that's going on because it seems to be, um, you know, really getting popular to play banjo. And, and it, um, it comes and goes. I mm-hmm. think when I was in high school, it was popular. Then after college, um, I was finding I was doing gigs that were like um, play for this Civil War reenactment. (laughs) (laughs) And I wasn't wasn't in clubs as much or getting to do my rock, banjo rock music. And there was no interest. And I moved to New York um, and went to grad school for art. I completely tried to drop music from my life. Oh. I managed for two years. Yeah. <laughs> That's about it. And then it came back. Oh, totally. I, I missed it so much, but Aww. I also felt like um, I there was no interest. Yeah. And the work had dried up, and it was in the 80s, and it was a time when many people left Pittsburgh, and a lot of the people uh-huh. I knew were leaving to find work in other cities because it's huh. when the mill shut down. Yeah. We lost a lot of population here. So I was always angry about ha- feeling like I had to leave my home oh. to get um, 
more work or more opportunities. They just weren't here. But the first thing I did when I got after I got my grad degree in painting, mm-hmm. um, I went out like I think as soon as I completed it, I went out and found musicians to play with. Really, <laughs> like, like the next day. Wow. <laughs> um, because um, I I was. Um, I needed to connect in, in that world. Yeah. So I started finding people through other visual artists who also loved folk music, um, had banjos. I started connecting with all these other banjo players in Brooklyn and New York and, um, you know, um, really found that not too many people were paying that much attention to me. And honestly, I'd be the only woman in a really? whole room of um male musicians all the time. So this is a great uh, place to transition into talking about um, issues involving gender. Um, So, I mean, I would love for you to to tell me a little bit more about that and your, you know, your thoughts about, you know, being a woman as a musician and, and I mean, actually maybe even with a banjo, because Mm -hmm. it seems like banjo is maybe a male dominated instrument as well. Well, you've got Rihanna Giddens, Great banjo player. That there's a lot of um, women coming up now, more than more than ever. I think when I started, there were were quite a few um, folk like folk singers who would play banjo. They play banjo and and guitar, but I I didn't want to uh, be known for singing so much. I wanted to be in a band and be part of the gang you know, uh-huh. and yeah. contribute. You know, a coll- I like collaboration, so I I like that um, camaraderie of a band, but also just you know designing with people instead of by myself. Um, even though I do a lot of that too, um, yeah, I had to fight for recognition really hard. Um, I I knew that when I would go to these big folk music jams in Brooklyn. And um, I would play my heart out. No one was listening to me. Everyone was, you know, concerned about themselves and showing, kind of showing off to each other. And I knew I was playing really well. Yeah. I knew it. It was obvious to me. So I'm like, hmm, no one's saying anything. So I, I just kept on moving, trying to find musicians that, I was looking for a band, I guess. I wanted to find people to play with, and uh, I wasn't connecting because I wasn't from New York. Uh-huh. Um, and a lot of the people who were playing folk music there, they'd grown up in Brooklyn, and they all knew each other, and I, I, it was very male-dominated. I had to keep searching. Every once in a while, I'd run into someone who knew me from Pittsburgh. I was in this band called Devilish Mary, and we, which still exists, but you know, very part time. Yeah, I was going to ask you yeah, about it because yeah. I I knew you were in a group called Devilish Mary, mm-hmm. and I was like YouTubing it to do my little research, <laughs> and I found old Devilish Mary stuff, and I was like, is this the same? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's been. We <laughs> it started is. it in college, wow. so we, we all met in college. And you, started man, you guys playing. look. You guys looked good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they look relevant, relevant. Like today. <laughs> like today. Yeah. yeah. But I, I would meet um, players in New York who remembered Devilish Mary and they would recognize me. That's pretty cool. And well, when that would happen, they would immediately start jamming with me and playing and they'd ignore the other guys in the room. 
and and people be like, why is he playing with her? Huh. So it was interesting without, you know, trying to be a new player in a new scene without anyone knowing my history. Sure. Just me, you know, explaining my history wasn't enough. <laughs> like, uh-huh. Yeah, I always had to prove it. Um, but What an interesting struggle. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, the, the thing is you just can't give up. You can't let that mm-hmm. stop you. That's true. Um, so um, little by little I found uh, good people to play with but there were times where you know I started a band with my brother in Brooklyn because I couldn't find you know anybody to play (laughs) with you know who would listen to me and we'd work and we would you know compose together he would play slide and we lived to you know um, at one time, we were roommates in Brooklyn before I got married. But we we started a band with a um, with an electronic um, um, guy who played just all electronic um, instruments and keyboards, and he did raves. Like he was like a one man band with a huge sound system. And Wait, this is your son this or your is, husband? No, my, this is my brother. Your brother. It's a whole family thing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, um, um, but. Um, my point is, is that, you know, we rely on our family to get stuff done because sure. we can't always find, you know, enough people who will seriously put in the time. This is, you know, a lot of dedication to do this kind of work. Yeah, definitely. You know, a lot of time you have to put in, you have to be into it and you have to care. And you have to care about the other people you're working with, mm-hmm. you know. But, yeah, we we. Um, started doing art openings with banjo, slide guitar, and electronics. (laughs) (laughs) Always unique. I just uh, love it. Well, it's always finding um, more novel combinations to see what you can do. And and that band worked well. It was was very cool. What did we call ourselves? Heights? We were... We kept changing our name. <laughs> it was, we, at height 611, it was like a, a UFO land, landing oh. site. It was, it was pretty spacey, seriously. <laughs> but um, what was fun was people could dance to it so we could play in clubs. Uh-huh. And, pe- and um, people were, at the time, it was before the big Americana banjo revolution <laughs> was uh-huh. hitting Brooklyn. Um, and people thought the high high tech with the low tech, they called the banjo low tech. Yeah. And they thought that that combination was really interesting. <laughs> uh, it is really, it is really interesting. Wow. And I bet not a lot of people have done that. Maybe the only people. What I loved about that band was um, we had severe limitations in that the guy who was playing his name is Jason Peterson. He could only make two chord changes per song. Oh. So it limited us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what we could write for this band, he could go do intervals like high, low, or go between C and D, <laughs> and that and that was it. Um, so because it was all samples, mm-hmm. and I was he couldn't. He was seemed like he was playing, but. Um, he was just trying to make movements through these electronics. So I had to learn to write to the machine. Sure. Which was great because uh, I had to lock in rhythmically with that machine, which mm-hmm. was inhuman. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't organic give and take. It was like, you know, it only worked if I, like, 
really fell in line with the machine, but that was good practice. I was going to say, really good practice. And um, I had to write songs with only two chords. So it threw me into a, you know, I couldn't rely on standard folk music type stuff that might have three mm-hmm. chords, like a more of a resolution. Sure. And, um, and it was cool. I mean, I learned, you know, a different way of writing because mm-hmm. I was working yeah. with different instruments. Yeah, that's neat. And so for Appalachia, there's, like you said, your husband who, he's got a jazz background, mm-hmm. right? So when you play Appalachia, when you write Appalachia music, is it all, it's more than two chord changes, it's a lot of chord changes, or mm-hmm. do you do, do you Not feel like jazz is part of the, part of the history of the, of your compositions? Jazz and the improvisational part where we'll have open sections where it's different every night. Oh. So we're interacting and we're listening to each other. And I think Jeff really encouraged Mimi and I to step out and just take solo, do, do something, make a statement. And um, I think that's something as a female um, artist, that's always been hard for me. I'm so much more comfortable supporting other people mm-hmm. um, in a music situation and I'll be the one who holds it all together I'm the glue in between the holes that's that's because yeah. that's what I see that's what I hear and I want it to work so I'm more uniting all the different parts together and like keeping the groove like a bassist or something remember my family yeah. history it's like don't don't take a solo don't show off right you know that's yeah you know keep your talent humble we know you ta- yeah of talent but let's not to tell everybody. Yeah. So, <laughs> no. so I, I had to learn to do that. It's very, yeah. uh, seemed very aggressive to me and hard to do. Well, Mimi's pretty good at it. Well, uh, yeah. go back to your family. Did mm-hmm. your parents encourage your brothers to be like that too? Um, I think, yeah, they did. I think this is maybe a struggle for my brothers as well. Yeah, so it's a, yeah. it's a protective thing. It's and, protective. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can't ever blame your parents for being protective of you, but then you still might end up having these kind of mm-hmm. mental, it's not even confidence necessarily, mm-hmm. or maybe it is, but it's it's something that holds you back from where you, where you want to go. One time I, I played in a club in Oakland by myself. Someone asked me, so I brought my guitar and I sang only songs I wrote. And people had no idea I did that. They saw me as the banjo player in mm-hmm. Devilish Mary. And they were like, wow, you should keep doing this. I was so terrified on that gig to be alone on stage yeah. singing songs that were very personal. Uh-huh. I, I was, it was shocking. I couldn't, I was like, it took me a long time to do that again. Really? Yeah. Even though you got very positive feedback? Mm-hmm. Which was nice, but it wasn't enough to get me to try it again. Mm-hmm. And have you yeah. since, though? Yeah. <laughs> and now is it something you do? Not only much later in life, though. Yeah. Well, who cares when it happens, right? Like, you're doing... Yeah. Like, that's the, um, an amazing thing about music, mm-hmm. is that it is, for as long as you will, you know, be committed to it, it will be committed to you, and, and you always grow. Oh, constantly growing. It's, mm-hmm. That's, you know, another favorite part is just seeing how it's um, developed, my writings developed and my playing. Mm-hmm. But I think, like Mimi's been talking, it, you don't do it alone. You, you get helped by all these people that you have, you learn from. 
And if you try things that aren't, you know, conventional, you, you know, you, you make something new. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So as a mother, did you find it hard to stay committed to music while raising children? Actually, the opposite happened to me. Really? Um, yeah, because... Tell me, uh, tell me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I started um, playing music even more. In fact, the night I conceived Sam, uh-huh. <laughs> I was playing. <laughs> really? I was on stage. Didn't happen. I wasn't, Wait, wasn't doing that. that. Okay, okay. Okay, no. Important I, point to important point. clarification. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't right there in front of everybody. No, but but I um I'm an older parent, so um I was um struggling to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I was going to the doctor and you know, trying, you know, I tried to take fertility drugs and they didn't do anything. And um you know, as usual, my my go-to thing would be I feel great when I play, when I play banjo. And one of those guys who recognized me from Devilish Mary, who was living in New York, so fiddle player, invited me to play with him as a duo at this really cool club, Sinead, in the East Village. And uh, so I was out till 3 in the morning just playing really hard, you know, just and still trying to prove myself. But mm-hmm. I, I was playing with this fiddle player, and he was real intense, had, had a ton of energy. And we were, um, I just, I think my the music, what happens is the music, because it's, it's vibrations, and it just goes all through your body. And, you know, I know when I, especially when I plug in with my elect, you know, amplified banjo you know i feel all all that all that vibration goes through my body i think that helped anyways later oh you think the vibration (laughs) helped something made everything like because i I played for hours that night and then i went home (laughs) i was like let's try again (laughs) let's try 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 if Uh you've ever had to try to get pregnant it's it's a lot of work and yeah, it worked. Wow! <laughs> so I credit the banjo for so many things wow. in my life. But that's, that's an one amazing of them. story. Wow. It's it's all true. And so. Sam knows this story. <laughs> he does be- now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to embarrass you, Sam. Hope you're not too embarrassed. <laughs> that's great. And do you have other kids too besides Sam? Yeah, Eli. And does Eli play music as well? Yeah, he's a singer, um, has a fantastic voice, and he's studying music composition at Princeton right now. Wow. He's doing really well. He's gone into the new music world, more of classical music, and he's a composer and you know, he's That's so interesting. Though, like your parents were so classically based, and mm-hmm. you were like rebelling from that. I rebelled. And yeah. Your child is like, I don't know if he's rebelling by going back to classical, but um, you know, he's interested in that, and that's really no, cool. he part he, of your blood. You know, no, I think he his skills work better in that world where Sam's work better in in the rock and roll world. That mm-hmm. you know, they're both so passionate about music, but. Um, they definitely excelled in different worlds. Like, I th- I don't think I could have made it in the classical world. I definitely had to find the world where I would move forward. Right. So, Well, your, your, your voice is like, um, it is part rebellious in this way that mm-hmm. um, I think is very suitable to rock and um, these different combinations of 
kind of avant-garde um, fringe uh, collaborations that you do, which is uh, good. I, I studied, I don't know that I'd studied, but I'd listened to a lot of Appalachian style singing, mountain, or what I'd call mountain singing, because I like the raw emotional feel of the, like the ballad singing. So I always wanted to sound like Doc Watson's mother, like that was my model. <laughs> Which, you know, I felt like she sounded like a bagpipe when she said, this, this is not a pretty sound. Yeah, I was going to say, very, bagpipe is not <laughs> like, like, I would not want to have a reviewer to be like, she sounds like a bagpipe. <laughs> Although I do, I mean, I'm, I've got a Scottish heritage, so maybe I would like to be called a bagpipe. I don't know. It's well, kind of like being called a windbag, though, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> But so you have I've gotten female Lou Reed for my, oh my voice. Ooh. Well, he doesn't have a pretty voice. He's almost talking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but a, there's nobody <laughs> like him though. Tom Waits, I've gotten that too. Oh really? Well, I'm not trying to sound like, right. like them. <laughs> but um I think because I have a low voice, yeah. um, uh-huh. it's rougher. To me it's like not enough of anything. Not pretty enough, not rough enough, not strong enough. It's like, you know, where can I go with Sue this voice? Is, but it is Sue. <laughs> it's Sue. It's Sue enough. So Mimi, do you have any thoughts about um, like how women are seen across different cultures in music? Is it different um, in Indonesia, in uh, Germany, in America? How about the other women that you know? Like, what Are there any differences well, there? Well, I actually, music is a very little part of my life. Uh, like I say, I uh, play all through high school just for fun, uh, community based. And then a little bit when I was in the university. But when I came here, after I finished my uh, architectural degree, I came here. Music wasn't part of my life. I had to re-establish, I have to establish myself as an architect in this country with a foreign education. I had to learn the language. I I had to take the registration exam. At the same time, I raised a child. So that music was not in my life at all. So that era of my friend, they some didn't even know I play. Mm-hmm. Not until my daughter was about 12. She doesn't need me. She didn't need me uh-huh. so close anymore. <laughs> yeah. you know? She started her teenager rebellion pretty early. Uh-huh. So, so I, I started to pick up my instrument. And, you know, I always make sure I'm home uh, after three o'clock when she came home from school. But, you know, I didn't have to supervise her work. So I, just, I can just do my own thing. And she would do her own thing next to me. Regarding this uh, struggling as musician, I probably have not much to contribute because uh, it all happened so naturally. Music just came in my life without me asking for it, without me uh, wanting to do anything about it, because I really focus on uh, my architectural life. And I'm still working as a a full-time architect so and I think what what of course I struggle a big deal big big time in my profession mm-hmm. as a female architect yeah, yeah. Ha, ha. tell me more about that well yeah I uh, started to 
work for a firm here in Pittsburgh as I was the only registered female architect in that firm. And working on a project in a big meeting, round table, they're all white male. And going to professional uh, convention, they're all white male. Yeah. <laughs> going to the function, architecture, you know, AIA function, so mostly white male. Things has changed now, I noticed. There are more younger female and also non-white architect there. But at my time, that was in the 90s, it was a big struggle. You never get credited of the work you did, mm. you know, but it bear your handwriting. You mm. know, you, you design a building is like doing your music. You have your own trade in there. It shows. But the good thing I did was to left the corporate world and uh, get my own firm going. I started really? in yeah I started in 1997 and 20 years now I'm still doing it. That's great, but it must feel so fulfilling being your own boss in this department. Very much because then you 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 can choose your client. Mm -hmm. And also I mainly focus on small projects and residential, so I have wonderful people I'm working with. Mm -hmm. Just beautiful. It's completely different than in a corporate world. Wow. So that's the best thing that happened in my life to leave the corporate world. Well, that's very brave for you to just strike out on your own like that. Yeah, it was it was hard, but you know, it's doable. Yeah. It's possible. I that's such a great story. Goethe said uh architecture is frozen music. Well, one of our ideas is to besides wanting to travel the world, we want to perform in all these interesting spaces. Great idea. Both yeah. Mimi and I are really into space, <laughs> uh -huh. and um, and the sound. And um, Jeff is too. He loves performing in, in different enclosures or you know where, wherever we can. So a place would have like natural reverb. You know, mm -hmm. Maybe we can. Yeah, like the train station downtown, mm -hmm. that apartment building. The that's got the big dome. The mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. The, the Pennsylvania. Penn station. Yeah. 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 Talking about that. I was just in Europe this uh, summer. You did it. And yeah. I played in a little uh, abandoned uh, cloister. A friend of mine lived there in the cloister. This is a huge cloister. They divided it up and sell it to private people and oh, they yeah. make their home there. And there is a little chapel underneath, not quite underneath, but a few steps under the, side, uh, the ground level. I played there with... Uh, Flute choir, five people mm -hmm. uh, playing Renaissance music. I jammed with them a little bit. It was, it was just unbelievable. It was just like bringing you a few hundred years back. Wow! And the sound was so alive. I have never heard my Urhu like sound like that. Never. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so at the end of that night, I asked my friend. Um, if I can come back tomorrow to play by myself. Ah. So they were all thrilled and they came back with me and I played there for hours. Wow. Um, just to play with the building. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That sounds kind of uh, it's spiritual. A, a tiny, tiny uh, 
chapel. So it just like all reverberates around. Yeah. Yes, really. yeah. I think Felicia should go there and record there. I feel like yeah. you guys, you know, you, all of these dreams can be combined into some epic mm-hmm. tour where you go to places where you know people and mm-hmm. you play in these weird spaces and people and come. And we videotape it. And you it. videotape <laughs> it and it all goes on YouTube and everything yeah. accumulates. Yeah. Well, we need to do it. And, and it is kind of like starting your own business. Like we just, we have to have the courage to just yeah. go and do this. Mm-hmm. And maybe yeah. to invest in it too, you know. Yeah. Like some somebody has to, the money has to come from Somebody somewhere. out there. <laughs> hey, everybody, <laughs> donate to Appalachia. <laughs> well, we could, yeah. Just be part of the project. Yeah, be part of the project. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, shift into your music that you have brought and that you will be playing so that um, we can talk a little bit about that. So we're going to listen to one piece from Appalachia. Which um, song are we going to listen to? Um, I'm going to try Four Hills. Four Hills. Be- good. Because I th- the land, for both of us, the landscape um, and, you know, places we write about places mm-hmm. being in a place things that happened in that place uh-huh so situational but i think um and are there lyrics in this or is this an instrumental no instrumental but i can uh, uh talk about that the yeah. background of that piece. i would like to hear the background yes. of the piece and also to hear about how you write a story into just instrumental um so kind of a little bit about both of those things right i um um, mentioned about my international sisters mm-hmm. before. So this uh, uh, Perihan by Rafchi, she uh, is Turkish born, but uh, she went to, like me, she went to Germany to study architecture and end up staying in Germany. She has a vacation home in Turkey. So about five years ago, I went with another friend who is from Peru. We, the three of us, without uh, discussing with each other, we went out on our own uh, in the same year, just how that happened you to we, make your business. In, yeah, in independently. So five years ago, we met uh, in Turkey, Perihan Suli from Peru, uh, and me coming uh, from three different continents to the fourth continent. And uh-huh. uh, we spoke the language, we speak the language that are not our native language. We speak German to each other. So Perihan took us to Bodrum, near Bodrum, her vacation home at night. So we arrived at night and I didn't see the landscape. And she put Suli and me both in a separate room uh, with full window to the sea up high on the hill. And the next morning, you can imagine, you open your eyes and you see this, this landscape, this sea and the island, it's in a bay. So you, you see land and you see the ocean that was just breathtaking and this this tune somehow come to me not immediately there but after a few days it kept coming and kept developing in my head so uh we always have long breakfast at the terrace so I just started to write down one day and everybody left, cleaned the table. I was still there uh, writing and tapping my my foot and my hand and singing. And, Do you uh, write on a score sheet or like how um, are you writing I, it? I wrote in a Chinese notation, uh-huh. which is much simpler. It's one to seven. 
、uh, A A do A B C D E F G A D. So one two three four five six seven. Uh huh. Um. So the、uh, Perian's mother was there. She she was eighty years plus. She is still eighty years plus. <laughs> and she was looking at me from inside the house and asked them, "What is Mimi doing there? Tapping her foot and singing and biting?" <laughs> <laughs> so that first part、uh, just came about like that, and the second part came to me when I was traveling in Cappadocia in the. Central part of Turkey. I ran a motorcycle, so、uh, that tune kept coming back. But I didn't write it down because I was on motorcycle. <laughs> This is such a great story. <laughs> yeah, she was in motion though. Yeah, in motion exactly. Yeah. So I kept humming it, kept humming it, so I don't forget it. And、um, and then at the end of the day, I wrote it down. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And the third piece came. When I was、uh, hiking, I was hiking, and、um, I was too busy talking. I didn't write it down either, and and I forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> and f- for some reason, it came back. So I、wow. wrote、um, the last piece was、uh, leaving Istanbul. I was walking. Emotion. <laughs> I was walking in the old city, crossed the bridge to go to the new new part, and and the last piece came. But we only used three pieces in this、uh, in the recording in our arrangement. And by pieces, you mean like like sections of the song? Like yeah, yeah, song. yeah. And I connected them with a with a transition piece that、mm-hmm. that. Connect all these different pieces together,、mm-hmm. and the arrangement is actually、uh, developed in when we rehearse together. Yeah, we 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 definitely sh- shaped it and yes. edited it、yes. and, and、yeah. arranged it together. Was the part that you wrote was that all your part, and then then they wrote their own parts, or is this like、um, the main movement, and you all figured it out together? Pretty much the melody, but we like. Maybe extending the measure to two measure,、mm-hmm. like to the note, prolong the note. I had to, I had to re- retune my banjo into a, a made up open tuning to play the, really? the song. It's in F sharp minor. Uh huh. So the the fifth string, the the short string, which is always a drone on a banjo, I had to make it in F sharp. Huh. So most people, like if you're playing bluegrass, you're usually in G. So The the that fifth string is a G.、Mm-hmm. Um, I play an A a lot. I tune my strings up tighter because I've played so much、um, fiddle music and Irish music that they tend to play an A and D a lot. The fiddle players. So I learned to play in those keys,、uh-huh. and I'm really comfortable in those keys. But banjo always has to.、Um, You know, tune for the key that it's in because you have to make sure your drone string fits with that key. I did not know that. Yeah. So,、um, and and I tried to get Mimi. Could you make it in G? Make, make like, like, do, do we have to do this in F sharp? Little change. Little change. And I had to try all kinds of different tunings, and I finally just 
tune the banjo into F sharp. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> like that's what, yeah. And that's what, what worked the best because I have to keep that drone, I have to keep a pattern going the whole way through the song. So yeah. that, that drone string is super important. <laughs> like right, right. Had to well, be the right note. Yeah, we definitely have the Appalachian version of this piece. When I play this piece with other people, it's, it's so different. Okay, well, let's listen to it. I'm so curious.
It's so exotic. So exotic. It's my version of Turkish. <laughs> I get that. Yeah, it was a Turkish delight. I loved it. That was really special. And the banjo, it definitely, it's just like, it's not banjo-y. You know no. what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's something else entirely. They can't, well, depending on who you are, you could make it banjo-y, but it would... Um, be distracting, I think. Sure. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's so great how it is mm -hmm. used in there. I just, at first I was like, which part? It's banjo. Where's yeah. the banjo? It's like percolating what? in the background. Yeah. And then Constantly. it like, and then it kind of come, it kind of burbles up every once mm -hmm. in a while where you're like, there it is. And it's, but it's not like, it's not that twangy banjo thing that and it's, it's people a expect. It's a banjo. difficult rhythm. It doesn't, you know, it's not. Typical, the syncopation was, it was hard for me to do. You always start with the downbeat usually, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that part is the It's an upbeat. upbeat. Yeah, I don't oh. really have a um, way except avoiding that downbeat, <laughs> starting uh -huh. with my thumb. Because so I, I play this, um, you know, claw hammer style, which isn't three-finger picking bluegrass style, so mm -hmm. it predates the 1930s bluegrass style of banjo playing. So mm -hmm. it's um, more African-based, you know, from the history of the banjo. And huh. I like it because in a lot of ways I find it more versatile and I can, in a sneaky kind of way, I can be playing banjo with anybody and not make it sound like, hey, there's a banjo in yeah. there. Uh -huh. um, so I, I like that way of playing. And it just, again, it, it, it suits me better. I just became more skillful at that approach to playing the banjo. Sure. But it does have its limitations, too, uh -huh, you know. Because uh -huh. so, it, you know, developed a place for four in a certain way, you know. Yeah, right, uh, With definitely. American music, so. Definitely. So, yeah, yeah that, that was hard. And I wanted to mention um, Jeff Grubbs is playing the bass. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I was this, like, where's that coming from? I was like, that cannot be the banjo. <laughs> <laughs> she tuned it way down. And Jeff Berman also played the percussion, percussion right. instrument in yeah. there. Which, the percussion that's which in there. we're added because you can't play everything at once. <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel that. And then the most beautiful thing about this is the open chord that you and Jeff uh, put in there. Yeah, we found a, a, a like a clave, like constantly playing mm -hmm. in the tune uh, with my fifth string, mm -hmm. the short drone string, and we we played it together. Jeff plays dulcimer, but he's a, a percussionist, a drummer, right. so um, everything playing with him, it is drums, <laughs> like no matter yeah, what right. we're playing. The rhythm is so exact with him mm -hmm. that when you when you play with him, I, I really sometimes just have to watch his arms or how he's doing something so I get the the pattern of the movement. So And also the yeah. open chord. Can you talk about that? Um I'm not I can't say that the F sharp minor. Well we won't play the whole um, triad of the chord will leave out notes so that and it's you, more modal. Sometimes you substitute with something else to create uh, tension in the chord. It's I like augmented. Like you'll add like a ninth to it, like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. like to push it, you know, out of its comfort 
physician. Yeah. And where did uh, where did you learn your theory? Just picking it up along the way. Oh, you hear people talking all the time, but um, just you listen to so much music, you hear people using the same devices all the time. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I'm, I mean, my main thing would be folk rock that I I really love, uh-huh. you know, and um, so it's it's blues. It's learning to um, you know make things more expressive by you know, bending the note or, mm-hmm. you know, leaving it out. So, sure. and, and it's wanting that openness, not, it's also, if you're trying to, um, create something that's more complex emotionally. So it's like happy, but it's melancholy at the same time. That's yeah. t- what I'm trying to do. Um, it can't, um, be typical uh-huh. or else you won't get that across. And um, so a lot of times um, I I prefer the music that's not so major sounding that has minor chords in it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. It's the melancholy part of me. Um, So we're... It's it's deep. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) We're really lucky you guys brought your instruments today too. So uh, we're going to listen to Mimi playing on the air. Who now? Let's hear what she has to play.
Okay, this song I wrote for a friend's wedding. It was her second wedding, and the theme was, uh, you know, you know, marry someone who really follows you instead of you following after them. That was kind of the theme. Um, marriage didn't work out. <laughs> so, <laughs> the song lives on. <laughs> the song totally lives on. Um, but a lot of times uh, an event, like um, could be a death, a marriage, a birth. I always write songs about life occasions like that. Um, but then it'll be collaged with other layers of thoughts and, and meanings. Um, so it um, becomes a whole song about marriage. And so there's a quote from my grandmother in this song about uh, don't get married. They'll make you work too hard. You'll have to work too hard. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> she was right. <laughs> and there was another theme running through in um, my family of, um, you know, wisdom passed down from women. Um, always have a job, always have a career, because men will leave you. Or die. You, you have to, or die, and you have to be self-sufficient. You have to have something. And I'm like, okay. Uh, so there's a lot of, <laughs> it's about men leaving in this song. And I actually started writing it, not for my friend's wedding now that I think of it, but I heard a news story about a guy who had two families in Texas that mm -hmm. they didn't know about each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that kind of thing. And that kind of fits with an Appalachian theme of um, love and leave them kind of Appalachian ballad thing or having an, another family somewhere else and they don't know about each other. So that, that all worked into it and me feeling like I, I really don't need much to, to be happy the song and be wary about you know falling um it's called the bluebird the bluebird is um a pretty thing that you follow and get lost because you're following something like a pretty guy yeah. that you think <laughs> think is beautiful and and um and you um, lose sense of what do you really need yeah so or that's even what, just like the dream of the usual marital stream the thing that society all my says. troubles are over now yeah, uh -huh. yeah that fantasy <laughs> yeah well it's still great though i mean i've learned a lot through marriage yeah yes and through having children you know shines a light on all kinds of corners you maybe weren't looking yeah at mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. all right so this is called the bluebird Thank you. 
both of your pieces that was so special and so different and um Mimi what was the name of the piece that you played um it's called uh Liang Xiao Beautiful Evening it was written in the 20s by a fellow called Liu Tianhua he was the first one who wrote Erhu solo pieces he was the person who improve the instrument to make it a stage uh, performing instrument. Great, great. And I also just had a lingering question in my mind about what your daily practice is like now or your weekly or however, whatever it is that you do. How do you, how is music a part of like your life? You know, music really helped help me doing what I do uh, most of the days uh, in architecture. It seems like when I work on architecture, I basically get up, work, and go to bed. So music really uh, 
forced me to be away from my drawing board. So it is very helpful. And also it regenerate my uh, being. So it, mm -hmm. it gives me energy. Right. So you uh -huh. need to. I need to. And this, this is just a blessing that I have this. Mm -hmm. That's great. I just love it. Sue, your piece was really, I mean, I almost cried actually in a part of it because of all the themes of what you were saying and just like making, it just made me reflect on my own life and just all kinds of thoughts. And um, so I wanted to share, share that with you so oh, you know. Cool. And I, I love, um, I love your voice. It's so... So it is real. It's raw. It's like all of these things, like the emotion is there. And you are both, I mean, I just think you're both so courageous as uh, mm -hmm. women and as musicians. And your pieces, solo pieces were very, very different. But also, I mean, you, you two are very different um, people, different backgrounds, different motivations, different ways that you found music and um, experience it. And yet, I really love how you resonate so well with each other. The real, the Genesis story of you guys finding each other. I mean, in the same way that you found your voice with your instrument, now you found your uh, collective voice through your connection. And uh, it's really sweet. And I, I want Appalachia to tour the world. Mm, yeah. I really do. <laughs> yes. and, uh, and I'm so happy that we were able to chat with you um, so much today and, and learn about you guys. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Petticoat Rule, galvanizing women in musical creativity. The views and opinions expressed during the show are solely those of persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the producers. Subscribe and find more information and episodes at petticoatrule.net. Follow us on Facebook at Petticoat Rule and on Instagram and Twitter at Petticoat Rule FM.